From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Women own one in four businesses in Metro Denver. That's one of the highest rates in the country. I think women are natural entrepreneurs because we are born to hustle. We are born to multitask. We are born to find problems and find solutions to those problems. And so that's what I did. We'll talk about the challenges and the support as more women decide it's time to go into business for themselves. Later, housing instability is an issue across Colorado. It's hard to believe, but in my little hometown of Akron, a single wide trailer house was sold for over $100,000 because of the non-availability of housing. So how do we fix it? State lawmakers are considering a possible solution, rent control. We'll explore the pros and cons with our Purplish team. Hi, I'm Sonny Hutchison, and my wife Mariana and I are CPR leadership partners. In a media landscape filled with what I think is narrow casting, catering to one point of view or political persuasion, CPR is still truly broadcasting, committed to expanding coverage across the state, providing stories that cover the spectrum of political, economic, and community issues, voices from all corners of Colorado. I urge you, if you can, to make that philanthropic donation at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. March is Women's History Month, a time of celebration and a time to reflect on the achievements and contributions that women have made and continue to make in our country. For many women, one of those accomplishments to celebrate is owning a business, being an entrepreneur. Well, according to one recent study, the Denver metro area is among the top major U.S. cities with the most female business owners. In fact, Metro Denver came in at number two. And this topic of women in entrepreneurship is also the focus of a recent report and event hosted by the Colorado Women's Chamber of Commerce called The State of Women in Business. Here to talk about it now is its new executive director, Simone Ross. Simone, welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you so much. Now, the title of the report is Major U.S. Metros with Most Female Business Owners. And we should tell you that the researchers said they included the 100 largest metropolitan areas for which complete data was available. This list also included New Orleans, Miami, San Francisco, Las Vegas, Albuquerque, Honolulu, and Richmond, Virginia. <laughs> Talk about a really kind of <laughs> random list of, of places. And so what was your reaction to see the Denver metro area as number two? So initially, I was excited. Um, I still am excited, but I also feel just a, a great sense of accountability because I think it's wonderful for women to be able to come to Denver and start businesses. And, you know, a lot of that is because there is access to capital for women, and we are doing a lot to ensure that. At the event, the governor announced that he's made getting your business license $1 with some of the funding that we got in, which is wonderful, um, especially when you are starting a new business. Um, But I feel a lot of pressure and accountability because I feel like it's all of our jobs to make sure those businesses succeed. Mm. Um, So it's one thing to start a business. It's another thing to sustain a business. And so Denver has to be the place where these women that are starting these businesses are creating legacies for their families, where they are adding to employment opportunities, where they have access to the funding that they need when they need it. And so that's really the work that we're focusing on is ensuring that success. 
Yeah, so let's dig into this study. So the study highlights business ownership among women in Denver, Aurora, and Lakewood. In terms of the findings, the Denver metro area is reported as having 24.4% of women business owners, just over 17,000 women-owned businesses, and employing more than 130,000 people and generating more than $5 billion in revenue. Wow. That's huge. That is huge. Um, And that just points back to the necessity of, again, all of us investing in those businesses and ensuring that they're successful because they are certainly contributing to GDP. Typically, what we know is that if you are a woman, a woman business owner, or even a woman in leadership, you're going to be more attuned to issues of inclusivity and equity. And so we know that by just the nature of that lived experience as a business owner, that they typically are hiring more women to work for their firms. They are being more inclusive and hiring BIPOC women, differently abled people. And so that's great. That's really great. And we have to make sure, again, that they're successful. And so we we like to dig deeply into the data um, as far as, well, where did these women come from? Were they in corporate ecosystems and they mm. left their corporate ecosystems? Are they owning these businesses as a side hustle as they continue to work in their existing roles And how can we support them at all of those levels as they're becoming women business owners? And then we're also looking at women-led firms, because there sometimes is a little bit of a difference between being that business owner versus Mm. being a woman-led firm. And quite frankly, Colorado is pretty high up, too, as being a state that has the top, we're either number one or two, for women-led firms as well, which means we're doing good But then you brought in those other data points as far as, well, what are the other major metropolitan cities doing? And, you know, at that 24, 26 percent, there's still a lot more opportunity for us to support women in business, help them grow those businesses. And even when we look at women-led companies, I think that's a little under 3 percent in Colorado. So there's still even more opportunity for us to support women in business, to create business architecture and infrastructure that supports women who are leading companies, and then just to make sure that they have access to funding, that they have access to um, a developed workforce, and that they can really go out there and grow their businesses for longevity. This report highlights that small businesses are a major engine of growth in the U.S. economy. Absolutely. What are your thoughts on that? Well, absolutely. Um, large businesses were once small businesses, and so mm, <laughs> it makes complete. <laughs> you know, it makes it makes complete and total sense to me that it's small businesses. I think when you look at it on a national scale, about sixty-four percent of businesses in the nation were started by women of color as well, and so it's just a unique place that we are as women, BIPOC owners, BIPOC founders. And really saying, you know, I found a solution to a problem and I'm going to start a business to make that solution and monetize that solution. And then I'm going to contribute to the larger economy. And we're seeing that this is happening at a large growing percent where women are saying, you know what, I'm going to start my own business. Um, Latina women owned businesses grew at more than 87 percent last year. That's staggering. Black women are amongst the largest, fastest growing demographic of entrepreneurs in the entire nation. Hmm. And so we have to look at it from a couple of different lenses, which would be, number one, why are women exiting their corporate jobs to start businesses? And I think that's a question that our partners in corporate America are currently becoming very curious about. 
And so we got to answer that because those are some systemic issues that we really need to be bold and brave in, in tackling. Number two, how can we ensure that those businesses are successful and that they can continue on? And so we have to look at funding. We have to look at systems that prevent people from accessing capital and other opportunities as business owners. We have to look at supplier diversity. We have to look at supply chain management, procurement relationships. Because again, it's kind of like the circle of life. <laughs> We've got these women that are starting mm. these businesses that have left large enterprises. Um, but these large enterprises still need to do business in some facet with these women that have left those enterprises. And it's something we got to start talking about. So thank you for talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why you're here. <laughs> well, I would like to note that this study came from U.S. Census Bureau data. And you mentioned nationally, it said women-owned firms now represent more than one in five businesses with employees in the U.S., a figure that has trended upward in recent years. These enterprises report nearly two trillion dollars in annual revenue and employ nearly 11 million workers. So a lot of uh, money being generated by business. So sounds like women-owned businesses are generating a lot of money for the economy. What is the picture in a snapshot of here in Colorado? Well, women-owned businesses in Colorado are certainly thriving. Even if you look at some of the venture firms that have been started in Colorado that are supporting women-owned businesses and investing in them, even female-founded venture firms in Colorado, we're on the rise. We're growing significantly. It's interesting. Last year's startups with all white women-led teams, they raised about 1.9% of venture capital as mm. far as venture capital allocations, which is still a staggering number. So that means that these women are potentially bootstrapping. Um, you know, doing all types of other things to get their businesses funded. But then when you break that down, Black women are still at around 0.4% in being able to access venture capital as well. And we are doing something about that in Colorado. We've got BIPOC-owned, Black woman-owned venture firms here, and we're really working to create an access-to-capital ecosystem between venture, CDFIs, other type of micro-lending funds to put solutions together to support these businesses that are run by women, that are BIPOC-run, to really support them as far as capital goes. Aside from some of just the training, there are some phenomenal opportunities for entrepreneurs to get the necessary training to manage their P&Ls, to be able to manage their businesses either in the growth phase or the launch phase, um, and to really create that network, because that's another huge thing, which is kind of what CWCC is, the chamber is also a network of women to be able to really support them at whatever phase they are in their business. And so we're doing well as a state. There's definitely an opportunity to do better and to continue to talk about the state of women in business. Well, this part of the study did not surprise me at all. It said that women are more likely than men to report that flexible hours or balancing work and family obligations were very important when deciding to start a business. And uh, and I can even speak to personal experience. I actually launched into entrepreneurship for several years just to be more available to my young children at the yeah. time. So have you observed like a similar trend here in Colorado? Oh, absolutely. It's we are definitely on trend nationally. I think the biggest thing that we learned kind of in during the pandemic and now that we're in an endemic is that flexibility is really key to to being a whole person, bringing your whole self to your work, being able to be your whole person for your family and having that flexibility, whether you're a caregiver, whether you're just trying to find whatever your definition of work life balance is, which I don't know if, if that's a thing, we'll call it 
equilibrium <laughs> at some point is is absolutely critical. And quite frankly, when we look at women's relationship with their corporate jobs, one of the key indicators as far as the great breakup is that women are leaving corporate jobs that don't allow for flexibility for them just to find their perfect balance. And so so that's critical when we think about remote work or even our opportunities to create income and revenue in different ways. Flexibility, nimbleness is absolutely key because women are the masters <laughs> at multitasking. <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> We do it all. I, I also earn a, a, own a couple of um, consultancy firms. And that was critical with my 13-year-old and my 8-year-old to be able to maybe drop something and and go to a, a basketball playoff game and not have it be punitive. Because oftentimes as a working mom, it's punitive to be a working mom. Um, and, and we've got to change that. We've got to start making shifts to where we're parenting out loud a little bit more. Um, and we're saying, okay, this is the multifaceted nature of women, working women. And let's be very clear. There's a lot of women that choose not to have kids. And that's perfectly fine too. But there still needs to be flexibility um, for community service and giving back, for building a business, for mentoring, for sponsoring other women, for doing just those other things that are so deeply important to us. Um, we're not a monolith, and you can't expect us to come to work that way every day. Yeah, before I worked here at CPR, I did a, I spent a year creating a podcast called In the Gap about the uh, the gender pay gap in black women. And uh, what you described was called the motherhood penalty, basically the penalty of, I mean, even just pregnancy and having doctor's appointments and things like that, that may take you out of the office. But then, as you mentioned, if you want to be this active parent, almost some in some environments, it's definitely frowned upon. Or, um, I mean, I've even had cases where just to go pick up a sick child, I'm like, hey, I'm not going to Tahiti. <laughs> I'm going to go pick up a child. But sometimes, you know, you, that are, that is the challenges for, for those who want to be active parents, you know, in the in the uh, workplace. So let's rope into our discussion, a woman business owner here in Colorado. We are joined now by Julia Alvarez, who is the CEO of Point Beach Strategies, a company that helps nonprofits and other businesses be more effective and efficient in how they serve communities. Julia, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, Julia, tell us a bit more about your business. When did you decide to go into business for yourself and why? Yeah, thanks for asking. So Point B Strategies is an organization comprised of a group of catalysts that are striving to change the way that we do community work here in the city of Denver. I started the company almost seven years ago now. Um, wow. And I think a lot of what you all are talking about really resonated for me. I needed work to look different in my life. Um, and I had spent four and a half years at a different consulting firm, three and a half years as the executive director of a small grassroots nonprofit here in Denver. And I needed a shift. I needed to be a little bit more in control of my schedule, a little bit more in control of how I was spending my time. And I really believed that there was a better way to do business. Um, and as Simone said, I think women are natural entrepreneurs because we are born to hustle. We are born to multitask. We are born to find problems and find solutions to those problems. And so that's what I did. Now, what surprised you most about the process of starting a business? Um, I was pleasantly surprised by how easy it was. And I've never owned a business anywhere but in Colorado. So I don't know if this is a Colorado thing or just a thing. 
Um, but it was an easy process to get started. And honestly, I didn't anticipate growth. Um, we've gone from just me in my basement to a team of 15 in wow. under seven years. Um, and I've been amazed by the support of people like Simone and the Colorado Women's Chamber in kind of supporting the growth of me and my business, um, as well as the support of the city of Denver to to be in this space. What have been the biggest challenges you've had to overcome as an entrepreneur? One of the things that Simone lifted up is procurement processes. And I think for us, that has been one of our biggest challenges. As a new, small, fairly grassroots startup, getting your foot in the door is hard. And so finding those people who can be good leverage points is incredibly important. Um, we have done a lot of work with the city of Denver to help them reshape their contracting processes to be friendlier to small businesses and to woman-owned businesses. Because quite frankly, unless you have uh, a long standing here in the city, it's hard to get your foot in the door. And I think that's been the biggest challenge for us to overcome is how do you find those people who can help catapult you into new spaces and new parts of the business and new parts of the city? Now, you mentioned the support of the chamber earlier. What resources have been available to you that you feel here in Colorado have helped you thrive as a business owner? We have a wonderful spirit of mentorship and collaboration, I think, among woman-owned businesses in the city. Um, and that has probably been the greatest resource for me is having people like Simone and other women-owned businesses around um, to just talk. Because honestly, that's the hardest thing is you don't know what's normal if you're only living your own experience. So to have other entrepreneurs and other um, female business leaders to go to and say, hey, this is what's going on right now as I'm thinking about growth. Hey, this is what I'm facing right now when I'm dealing with the city. Hey, what am I supposed to be reading in these financial statements that I'm looking at? And having that community of mentorship has been huge for us. What's the one piece of advice you have to someone considering starting a business here in Colorado? Do it, I will say. <laughs> um, and be ready because it's hard. I mean, every time I think that it's going to get easier, a new challenge erupts. Um, and find those people who are going to be your cheerleaders and hold on to them for dear life because you never know when you're going to need them and when they're going to need you. I think this is also a really reciprocal space for business ownership. So be willing to talk to anyone and everyone because you never know when they're going to be the person that you need. Absolutely. I can definitely speak from experience. You have to talk. And like you mentioned, many of these businesses are started in a basement. Like you don't have a coworker, you know, that was my story. <laughs> yeah. So you don't have a coworker to lean over or even a maybe even a vice president or assistant to say, what do you think about this or what should we do? So you're kind of in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. Yep, absolutely. Well, very insightful. Thank you. Simone, so you are the executive director of the Colorado Women's Chamber of Commerce, and you recently hosted an event called the State of Women in Business. What did it entail? This is our opportunity as a chamber to tell a data story, to tell some more qualitative stories, um, to tell some experiential stories from business owners in the state. At our State of Women, we took a national approach and we flew out the amazing Charmaine Davis, who is the director of policy and programs for the National Women's Bureau. She and her team came out to really talk about, from a national perspective, what is the state of women in business? Well, it's the great breakup. Right now, women are breaking up with their corporate jobs, 
For a lot of the reasons that we discussed previously, they're desiring flexibility. They're desiring pay transparency. They're desiring pay equity. They are want more opportunities for remote work. Um, they're feeling undervalued. Um, they want more opportunities for promotion. They want to move into key roles as far as leadership goes. And they're not seeing that, especially for women of color. We used to call it a glass ceiling, but what women of color are now saying is that it's a concrete ceiling mm. and that they're not even able to see those next levels because women of color typically have less engagement and interaction with senior leadership and management. They usually are not even told about opportunities for promotion. They don't have access to opportunities for continuing education. And so for women of color, it's not even a glass ceiling. It's that they can't even see their next step. And so women are breaking up with their corporate jobs. Um, interestingly, women in Colorado are paid approximately 78% of what men are paid. And so we've got a lot of work just there, um, just to fix that for women. And then again, if you break it down by the identities, if you break down how much black women are being paid versus Latinx women versus Asian women, those statistics become even more abysmal. And so we've got a lot of work to do there. And so, so we discussed some of the things that we're doing to promote pay transparency, whether it's legislatively or even through workplace operation strategies to ensure that women, again, are being paid equitably and have equitable access to opportunity. So, Simone, what's next? What do you see in terms of the future in 2023 and beyond for entrepreneurship among women in Colorado? It's going to continue to grow, right? Entrepreneurship for women and women in Colorado, BIPOC women, it's going to continue to grow. Colorado has their eyes faced forward, I do believe, on ensuring that we are, again, looking at the barriers to access for women. And so we've got a wonderful venture capital committee that is making sure that women are having access. We've got new venture capital funds that are here to support women. There's a lot of work being done with other organizations and if I started naming them all, I would get in a lot of trouble. <laughs> um, but, you know, we've got the, the Colorado Enterprise Fund. We've got Energize Colorado. We've got a lot of banks that are taking, um, making great leaps and bounds and promoting access to capital for women and BIPOC women in business and prioritizing those things. Um, and so I think that, yeah, women entrepreneurs, we're going to continue to start businesses. We're going to continue to be working in corporations um, and starting businesses. There's actually a great need for entrepreneurial mindset in business. That's where innovation happens. And so I think we're going to see a, a huge rush of that as well. Um, and my hope is that we'll continue to recruit firms from out of state that are women-led um, and have diverse women in leadership. And then I think that if we look at the legislature, if we look at what's happening in the General Assembly right now, there's a lot of legislation out there that impacts business and uniquely impacts that intersection of women and business. And so I would certainly stay tuned with the legislature, because in addition to the other things that are happening in the private sector, um, our legislators are also looking at this and looking at some very critical ballot initiatives that, that would support women in business. As we close, any final thoughts you want to share with us about women-owned businesses in Colorado? Well, it is Women's History Month. And so the first thing is support women-owned businesses. Um, support BIPOC women-owned businesses. Not just in the month of March, no, <laughs> but all year long. Support these businesses because this is the only way that they'll be sustainable. Additionally, look at ways to promote women in your existing companies. 
add a plan in your succession planning where we are filling roles that are typically filled by a man, fill that role with the woman. Um, interact and engage with people that might not be at the supervisor level, maybe at the mid-level at your companies. Engage them. Are there ways to sponsor women? Are there ways to mentor women and ensure that they are filling these roles internally at large corporations? But yeah, support women in business, support women in work. It's, it's not that hard to do. It just requires intentionality. Simone, Julia, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. That was Simone Ross, the new president of the Colorado Women's Chamber Foundation and chief executive officer of the Colorado Women's Chamber of Commerce. We were also joined by business owner Julia Alvarez, who is the CEO of Point B Strategies. Check out our website, CPR.org, later today to find links to both of the reports that we discussed today. When we come back, is rent control a way to ensure affordable housing? This is Colorado Matters on CPR News and KRCC. Caught in an avalanche, buried under thousands of pounds of snow. It had always been one of Scott Benj's greatest fears. Then it happened. I couldn't move a finger. I mean, I couldn't move anything. I can tell you it's much scarier than you can ever imagine. A backcountry skier reflects on his survival and choices. Read his story and see pictures at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. State lawmakers are considering a number of measures this legislative session focused on affordable housing. One idea that's gaining traction is rent control to help people stay in the homes they're already in. CPR Public Affairs reporters Benta Berkland and Andrew Kenny explored the possibility in Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News. Probably the first thing to understand about what lawmakers are proposing is that it wouldn't actually create rent control anywhere in Colorado. What the state lawmakers want to do is let the local governments, your your cities and towns, decide whether to create rent regulations themselves. So the state lawmakers are talking about getting rid of this four-decade-old ban that says right now cities can't do rent control. And this isn't the first time the legislature has tried to do this. In fact, four years ago, Democratic Senator Julie Gonzalez, who's still in the Senate, sponsored a bill to get rid of the ban. She's from Denver, and she said what she was seeing was that some cities really needed this option. Given the transformation that we were seeing in Uh, specific neighborhoods, many of which were in my district, uh, you know, northwest and downtown Denver. And seeing that uh, that transformation and the proliferation of luxury apartments versus um, affordable apartments, folks wanted us to act. But that first time the Democrats tried to get rid of the rent control ban, it didn't go very far from everything I've seen. That's right. The bill got out of a committee in the Senate, Mm -hmm. but then it ultimately failed on the Senate floor. Democrats had a narrower margin in the Senate at that time. And they'd actually just won back control of the chamber in the previous election. So this was the first legislative session after they regained the majority after four years. They were still feeling out what to do with their power. I think that's right. And some high-profile Democrats joined Republicans to oppose the bill, and that was pretty much the end of it for that session. I very much knew going in that this was an uphill battle. 
And I've always approached this issue specifically, knowing that um, this isn't a traditional D versus R issue, that every um, member of the of the Senate has their own perspective, and that's valid and you know worthy of respect. But I wanted to have a conversation. One thing she's getting at there is that this is an issue that divides Democrats in particular. I think that's absolutely right. And we saw one Democratic lawmaker in 2019 who said she just did not fundamentally believe that cities and counties should be in the business of, quote, telling businesses how to run their businesses. Mm. So as we've seen this session, this new version of the bill has already progressed further and faster in this legislature. And we should note that it, this version was introduced in the House instead, so it's kind of coming from a different direction, but it's already cleared the House. Yes, that's right. And Gazala said she really thinks the last few years have helped change people's thinking. She thinks going through the pandemic laid bare how many people are struggling and opened up what lawmakers were willing to consider. It's why I think that you've seen over the past several years um, the number of housing bills um, that we take up as a body just really greatly expand. And you're seeing that this bill um, to once again attempt to allow local jurisdictions the ability to make their, their own decisions regarding rent control. You're seeing this issue pop up again because people are, people are drowning. On the flip side, though, having a bill moving forward at all this year does mean that lawmakers will have to think again about whether they believe this is the right way to try to help people. Rent control and rent stabilization, it's an idea that's been around in one form or another for about a century now. That means it arrives here in Colorado with a lot of history and baggage and just a lot attached to it. So, Andy, I've just an inkling that this could be the moment where you have a little history lesson for us. <laughs> Prepared. I mean, me? Never. No. <laughs> Didn't spend any time in a giant research rabbit hole. But yes, I did, actually. <laughs> and to understand the debate this year in this state, I think you kind of have to understand a little bit about what went before nationally with rent control. So what did happen? Well, like I was saying, the idea that the government can get involved in how much rent people pay, that's not new. In both of the world wars, the federal government here actually took action to freeze rent levels. Landlords were told they must be patriots. That's Dennis Keating. He's a professor emeritus at Cleveland State University. I called him because he's studied and been involved with the rent control fight for decades now. And as he told me, after World War II, those rent controls kind of dropped away in most places, but not all. The federal government ended federal controls but then states continued those controls temporarily till about 1950, at which point most states with uh, more housing coming along uh, basically let them expire with the notable exception of New York. I still feel like even today, that's the one city that if the term rent control pops in your head, yeah. you know, that's what you think of. Yeah, I think that's the same for most people. When they think of rent control, they think of the way that New York did it in the 50s and the 60s, which is you have the system that really pretty strictly controls rents, doesn't let them go up too easily. And it leads to the situation where some people have just absurdly low rent costs and they'll hold on to an apartment for decades and decades because it's just such a good deal. Yeah, I would too when you, yeah. when you see those prices. <laughs> so in the 50s, New York has 
this rent control. <laughs> but in the rest of the country, had they pretty much left it behind? Yeah, it really started to disappear. It didn't stick around for too long in most places. But that starts to change again in the late 60s and early 70s, which is because of the economy. Inflation starts really picking up. The economy stagnates, stagflation. And some leaders start trying to really do something to fix things. The second indispensable element of the new prosperity is to stop the rise in the cost of living. President Richard Nixon at one point actually orders a freeze on wages and prices, really extreme action, and that included freezing rent. The time has come for decisive action, action that will break the vicious circle of spiraling prices and costs. Now, Nixon's order there was temporary, but at the same time, those same cost pressures were leading to these movements of tenants and renters springing up all around the country and demanding that their local or their state government do something to help control rent. You were basically faced with the threat of being priced out of the city. And Professor Keating was a part of it. I was in Berkeley, California as a student when uh, we organized the first post-World War II uh, rent control initiative in California in Berkeley. I'm not that surprised to hear that Berkeley adopted rent control. No. <laughs> but did it spread much farther to places that weren't as progressive? It did. In the same time frame, it was cropping up a lot in New Jersey, which was not as blue and, and was voting fairly red at that time, mm -hmm. as well as some other areas around the country. Another thing is they started using a, a new term that's been really popular ever since, and that is not rent control, but rent stabilization. So why that switch? from rent control to rent stabilization, was it branding to build support or was it something about that term stabilization that they felt was more accurate? Maybe a little bit of both. Maybe they were trying to create some distance from the old New York policies, which had come in for criticism already, I believe. But they also were different than rent control because they were designed to allow rents to rise every year, for example, to really have a built-in way for rents to keep increasing. And they were designed, in some cases, to make exceptions for like new development. So you can see already they're trying to avoid some of the stuff that rent control has a bad reputation for. And the movement even made it to Colorado, maybe unsurprisingly to Boulder, where citizens started working on an initiative to get rent control. But then the tide really turns as landlords and politicians and others started to crack down and push back against the idea of rent control. There was a huge landlord backlash. You had 37 states, including Colorado, that uh, had basically uh, had the real estate lobby pass had them pass legislation like yours to either ban it or restrict it. So in 1981, Colorado passes this law saying local governments cannot regulate rent. And over the years, the courts even expanded that to say local governments couldn't do things like requiring developers to build affordable units. They were saying that's a form of rent control. But things have clearly changed in terms of this ever-shifting tide. Yeah. And now this is a policy Democratic lawmakers in Colorado want to consider. For sure. And this new interest isn't just happening here in Colorado. It's scattered across the nation where we're seeing cities and states both act on rent stabilization efforts. California and Oregon, maybe most notably, both passed statewide rent regulation laws in 2019. I think those were the first of their kind. And so this idea that seemed like it was on its way out decades ago. Well, it's almost risen from the dead. It's like those 1980s fashion choices that you think, wait, why were people wearing that? And then here you go. It's in style again. 
Yeah. I mean, things, fashion and politics both go in cycles, especially when you start to see inflation and some of those same factors come back. But the advocates would tell you, just like maybe some modern fashionistas, is that it's a little different this time. When lawmakers in the House debated this year's version of rent control, it was a very lengthy debate. And one of the clearest takeaways was that Republicans were very united in their opposition. We can say we're going to control rent. We're going to lower rent. And then houses stop being built. You can say we're going to control rent. Property values go down. We're going to control rent. Why? Because the market is something you cannot control. It's not that Republicans are philosophically opposed to just meddling with the free market and government being involved in this space. But they also argue that rent control itself just doesn't lead to good outcomes. Only 2% of all economists said that price controls on rent improve the availability and the quality of of affordable housing. 2% of economists say it's a good idea. So 98% think this is a bad idea. Well, I'd say that 98% were disagreeing about the specific goal of affordable housing, but it is fair to say that mainstream economists for quite a long time were pretty opposed to rent control and, and remain quite skeptical of it now. So talk about some of those concerns that, that people really have I know that New York City is one key example people could draw from. Yeah, and New York, especially the early rent control laws, become a poster child for what can go wrong. And the idea is that if you make the rules too strict, it leads to potentially really negative unintended consequences. Hmm. Uh, For example, landlords don't make enough profit and they don't see a way to make more profit. So they just stop maintaining their buildings and let them deteriorate. There's research that actually shows that it has a negative effect on the quality of housing stock when you have those tight restrictions. Other research will show that strict controls could potentially discourage new development because developers don't see a profit margin. Especially with first-gen rent control, research seems to show you end up with limited or increasingly lousy housing stock. Which seems like exactly what everyone in Colorado would want to avoid here. Yeah, and the, the, the advocates will tell you they've taken steps to avoid that. Some of the other problems, though, that you see crop up is, you know, again, with New York, they have just this total patchwork where one building might be rent controlled and the next one is very similar but isn't rent control. So you have these super cheap rents that tenants are just clinging to. But on the other side, studies have found that rents can go even higher in the non-rent controlled units. So you may be getting a discount on one, but then the person in the non-controlled unit is paying even more because... You know, you've kind of got this limited supply of free market units and maybe landlords are even raising rent on one unit to make up the loss on the other. So we have this image of New York in the 1950s, 60s as this rent control cautionary tale. But supporters of the policy in Colorado this year are saying, look, that's not what we're talking about. Yeah, they are arguing that they've got this kind of evolved version of rent control. They're now rent stabilization, like we mentioned earlier. And the changes get a little bit complicated. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Yeah, (laughs) this is already complicated, obviously. Yeah. So that first couple decades of rent control in New York is what we would call first generation. And again, like super strict, not a lot of room for rent increases. And then in the 70s and beyond, what we've seen since then is more like a second generation, it's called. Well, how many generations would you say there are? 
well, basically three if I'm the one counting, because we've got this new wave coming in. But putting semantics aside, let's talk more about that second generation, mm-hmm. the ones that are called rent stabilization laws. As Dr. Keating explains, they have some features built in that are supposed to make them a little more market friendly. The ones that have been enacted since the late 60s uh, were so-called second generation, which are not rent freezes. They're rather um, systems which allow for usually typically annual or regular rent increases based on various factors. So just to, to underline there, the idea is that these laws are more lenient. They say, hey, we know you got to make some money. We're going to let rents rise every year or however so often. Not going to be a hard cap. And they also create more ways to take an apartment out of rent control. And they contain these exemptions for new buildings so that you don't disincentivize development. They're trying to take care of all those ways that rent control interferes with the market. So if those laws have been around since the 60s, -hmm. what do we know about how that's played out? It always depends where you look, who you ask. Mm -hmm. You can find studies of cities in New Jersey that have these more moderate rent policies. And those studies found they didn't discourage new construction, didn't seem to have any effect on that, and may have actually helped lower overall rents. Okay. But you can also find a lot of examples of unintended consequences. San Francisco has a newer rent stabilization law, and a big recent study of its effects there found that a lot of landlords with rent-controlled units were scraping and redeveloping them in order to get out of the controls because new development is exempted. Okay. So you have this effect where some people get lower rents, but then the landlords start demolishing the buildings and building new buildings, and that arguably accelerates gentrification and raises rents in the end. It gets complicated. And that's a concern we've heard in the testimony on this bill here in Colorado from opponents. So real estate developers, people in the construction industry, landlords, that they're very concerned if we pass any type of rent stabilization that it would lead landlords to just not renting, not being part of the market anymore at all. Property owners will simply just remove their properties from the rental market. I know I will. I own two properties and I will, if there was rent control that was put in place. I would not rent those properties out. I've been through that nightmare already, and I would not rent them out. One other example that we can find in the literature is Cambridge, Massachusetts, where researchers found that rent control had dragged down property values, not just of controlled buildings, but also of non-controlled buildings, that it was like leading landowners to not take care of their buildings and kind of dragging down the whole market by billions of dollars in value. Wow. That's going to impact a lot of people who aren't renters and don't even own a property for rent. That's right. But it's also really hard to figure out what would happen in Colorado if cities started doing this, because it all comes down to, you know, these are all different cities. The laws are all different. So tough, as always, to apply any one policy. On this issue in particular, it seems like whether you're for rent control policies, you're opposed, you can pull a study to try (laughs) to use that to bolster your argument. But Is there a general consensus of how experts think of rent control? Are Republicans right when they say economists pretty much all think this is a bad idea? I think that there's truth to that. I think that what you see is there's agreement that you can't just control your way into having really cheap housing. Mm. You can't just go to the market and say, all housing is now cheap. You can't have the really strict limits of 50s and expect there to be no ill effects in the market. But on the flip side, advocates are now saying that, well, we don't expect this to make the market a lot cheaper. They're arguing, and they have some research to show that, at the least, rent stabilization will help tenants stay in their house, help them avoid those sharp increases, and that maybe you can find a way to do that without creating negative side effects. It's like slowing the growth. 
Yeah, it's saying that we may not bring down the prices of the whole market, but we're going to ensure you don't see a 40% rent hike one day. They're framing it more as anti-price gouging. I want to get really specific on what's being addressed in Colorado this legislative session, the bill that is before lawmakers. What would it actually do? Originally, all the bill did was basically say, hey, cities, go for it. Do what you want to do. But then there have been a few amendments to help it win some political support. And that's incredibly common at the Capitol, at the State House. Yeah. A bill gets introduced, and that sometimes can just be kind of the starting point for negotiations as more people are hearing of the policy, especially on ideas that are controversial. And in this case, what they've done is introduced some limits saying that if a city does implement rent control, that they still have to make some exceptions. Basically, they would have to make an exception for new development, so no rent control on stuff built within the last 15 years at any one point. They also have to let rents rise, at least in the current version. They have to let rents rise every year by at least the rate of inflation plus 3%. So in a year like this year, last year, that could easily be 9 or 10% a year. So knowing full well this bill has not passed and it's still in the middle of the legislative process, but as it's amended at this particular moment, how would that compare to rent control policies that exist in other places? Yeah, New York style, California style. <laughs> Sounds like pizza. Yeah. What kind of pizza would it be? What it does resemble is these new California and Oregon laws. Both of those states, again, passed the nation's first statewide rent control laws back in 2019. And they allow those fairly high increases every year. And that's what I'm kind of calling the third generation of, of rent control. Okay, so we are in the third generation here in Colorado, yeah. potentially. And just At to least make, according to me. <laughs> according to Andy. So let's say this bill does pass. Who would it really help? Well, Representative Mabry argues that this is not going to slow down the whole housing market, not going to slow down rents, not really do that much to result in lower prices than exist right now. But what he says is that if you're in a neighborhood that's rapidly developing and you see that new condo go up across the street, maybe if your city has rent control, you won't get a 30 or 40 percent rent hike. Instead, you just see a 10 percent one. And it helps workers and existing communities stay put for longer and avoid displacement. Our housing crisis requires multiple solutions. One is a more short term one that involves rent stabilization to prevent unnecessary displacement, keep communities together, make sure kids can stay in the neighborhoods where they've been going to school for years. And another one is more, okay, well, we have to build more. Quickly to go back to the politics of this, the votes suggest that lawmakers behind this bill, yes, they've managed to win over enough supporters in the House, mm -hmm. even with Republicans united against it just because of the wide Democratic margins. But it's about to arrive in the state Senate, and that is trickier. That's right. Since Democrats have less of a margin in the Senate, it gets a lot trickier, like you said. As we saw even in the House, where it had strong support, there are still a fair amount of Democrats who we know are not on board with this. But then there's one thing that we haven't really talked about yet. Even if the bill survives the Senate and the Senate committee and, you know, reconciliation and all that, it's still not going to be a done deal. No, it's definitely not. And there is one other person who will want to weigh in, who does get to weigh in, and mm -hmm. that is Governor Jared Polis. Mm -hmm. And this is generally something he is skeptical of. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm wondering if you've heard him say much about this bill yet. Yeah, I've asked him about it and his office, and they haven't said that they're opposed 
to rent control, mm-hmm. rent stabilization. But they say words like skeptical and unintended consequences. So let's say this gets through the legislature. The governor does sign it. He is on board. Okay. So this policy makes rent control a possibility. It does not require it. Are we just going to see a lot of fights at the local level and within local government about whether or not to use this? Yeah. If this passes, it becomes our colleagues at Denverite's problem because (laughs) rent control will be a topic of the day in Denver and I'm sure several other cities. And it will be up to them to decide whether to do anything about it. And assuming the housing market keeps going the same way it does, there will be a lot of pressure on them to act and to consider doing rent control or rent stabilization. That, again, is if this state bill passes in the first place. Andrew Kinney, Benson Berkland, and an excerpt of Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News. Hear this entire episode and others at CPR.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us today and to the Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbraño. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. You're with CPR News and KRCC. KRCC.